Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Last week, we went through Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And in the further, at the end of... John chapter 4, we read that he arrives in Galilee, and he's welcomed by all those who have seen the miracles in Jerusalem. And then soon after his arrival, he's visiting Cana when a royal official from Capernaum finds him and pleads with Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus responds, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And then he tells the man his son will live and he should return home. And the man returns to find that his son's fever had broke just as he was speaking with Jesus. And then John skips ahead to the next time Jesus visits Jerusalem. So we are going to pick up the next piece of Jesus' life in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 26. This is when Jesus visits the synagogue in Nazareth for the first time as a teacher. In Matthew 13 and Mark 6, we read of a similar visit to Nazareth. Most scholars think that this was probably a subsequent visit because of the order of events in the three Gospels. But I'd like to read Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 26 in their entirety here before we begin. If you'd like to stand while we read God's word, that would be, if you're able. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath, in the, reason of, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, 
They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. You may be seated. And let's open with a brief word of prayer. Father, your word is, is wondrous, and thank you for it. Thank you for the lessons contained in it. Help us to hear them. Help us to explore them today. Help us to apply them to our hearts in the ways that you would have us. Lord, please just fill us each with your spirit so that we can understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have heard the story of the man who purchased a horse from a preacher. It's an old story. The preacher was explaining to the man that he had trained the horse in a peculiar way. In order to get the horse to go, he said, praise the Lord. In order to get it to stop, he said, hallelujah. The man was okay with this, and he purchased the horse and hopped up, and he said, praise the Lord. And the horse took off at a gallop, straight towards the cliff. And the man started to stop the horse. Whoa, whoa! And he realized he had forgotten the word to stop the horse. But just before the edge of the cliff, he remembered, hallelujah. And the horse skidded to a halt just before the edge of the cliff. And so relieved, the man cried out, praise the Lord. <laughs> That's an old story, but it is a good one. <laughs> the point is that saying the wrong things can get a person into trouble. And there are a number of very public personalities that can testify to this. Politicians, celebrities, religious leaders have all said things that have got them into trouble. And I'm sure we have all said things that have got us into trouble as well. In the case of this fictitious writer and Jesus in the passage of Luke that we've read, their words nearly got them both thrown off a cliff. The one critical difference is that the statements of Jesus were very purposeful. Jesus did not suffer from a slip of the tongue, but made a deliberate statement of truth. We need to ask, why did Jesus sabotage his popularity with the people that he had grown up with and lived among? Let's open up. We're going to spend most of our time writing those verses in Luke 4. Luke 4, 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Jesus has returned from Judea, where he had been baptized by John and anointed by the Spirit and confirmed by the Father, where he was tested by Satan, where he cleansed the temple, performed miracles, met with the powerful Pharisee Nicodemus, and on his way back, the Samaritan woman. He'd probably only been gone for about six months, but a lot had changed. This was no longer Jesus the carpenter. He's returning to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and people are responding to his message. He's teaching in the synagogues throughout the land, and everyone praised him. You've got to wonder a little bit about that. Everyone praised him. Certainly after reading the confusion of Nicodemus, and the antipathy of the Pharisees, it seems strange how well he is now accepted in Galilee. Then he comes to Nazareth. Nazareth, a small town. Some people wonder why he bothered at all. There were much larger cities like Tiberias and Caesarea on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. 
But of course, this was his home, and of course he would want to minister there to his family, to his friends, to the people that he had grown up with. And his family was there, his mother Mary, his younger half-brothers. While he is there, it is time for Sabbath, and he goes to the synagogue as was his custom, as he was used to doing. But this time, attending the synagogue was a little bit different for him. He comes as a teacher. Jesus was a well-known rabbi. He had turned water to wine in nearby Cana. He had healed a nobleman's son to the east in Capernaum and performed many miracles in Jerusalem when he was attending Passover. Remember, news about him spread through the whole countryside. Jesus was famous. And I imagine the little synagogue in Nazareth was packed as tightly as this church might be if Billy Graham was up here speaking instead of me. <laughs> Synagogues were not a biblical innovation. And by that I mean they were not a requirement of the Old Testament. The synagogues first started to appear when Judah was taken captive in Babylon. Since the temple was no longer available for worship, people needed a place for instruction and spiritual growth. And it started, they started gathering in homes and then in more formal buildings. By this time in history, any city with a sizable Jewish population had a synagogue for worship and instruction. There's a fair bit of background information available to how the synagogue service was conducted. Has, I should pause. Has anyone ever been to a synagogue service? I've been one time because I took Hebrew, so our Hebrew teacher went. And it is, it's, there's similarities and differences. But here, J.W. Shepherd describes a typical synagogue service in his book, The Christ of the Gospels. In the worship of the synagogues, which since the restoration from Babylonian captivity had played so large a part in Jewish life, there were three persons who participated, the reader, the interpreter, and the expounder or preacher. On the Sabbath and certain festive occasions, there were several readers. Two lessons were read. One, the parashah, was from the law, and the other called the half-Torah from the prophets. Two prayers preceded the first reading. When the selection from the law had been read, Jesus, invited by the chief of the ten leading elders, took his place to read the lesson from the prophets. The Chazayan, or schoolmaster clerk of the synagogue, took from the Ark of Painted Wood the roll of the prophet Isaiah and handed it to him. In the chief seats before him were the ten leading elders, and behind them ranged the congregation, the men on one side and the women on the other, separated by a lattice. And you can imagine the pent-up excitement as the crowd sits through the prayers and the teaching of the law, waiting on Jesus, this hometown boy made good, to stand and address them. And then a hush falls over the congregation as he stands. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
Jesus is handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, whether at his request or at the discretion of the synagogue clerk, we don't know. But he finds this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, and he reads this prophecy. But he stops mid-sentence, just before the words, and the day of the vengeance of our God. And I think, Wesley, do I have that verse there? Isaiah 61? Maybe not. <laughs> oh, I do. He stops right after saying to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he doesn't continue to the day of the vengeance of our God. You see, Isaiah and the other prophets speak of two messianic visits. They foretell that the first time the Messiah comes, he will proclaim and reveal God to men, and free us who are slaves to sin by providing a way to salvation. The second coming will bring God's judgment to the earth and destruction to his enemies. Jesus stops at this point in Isaiah to distinguish between his first coming as a servant Messiah and his second coming as the conquering Messiah. Jesus had not come to condemn mankind, but to save mankind. He has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Another name for the year of the Lord's favor is the year of Jubilee which is described in detail in Leviticus 25. It's a special year occurring every 50 years after the Israelites first came back to Canaan. Anyone who was poor and had to sell his ancestral family property during those 50 years gets that property returned to them. Anyone who had had to sell themselves into slavery during those years is set free. Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners and the oppressed, and recovery of the sight for the blind. Spiritually, we are the poor, and Jesus has freed us from the bonds of slavery and the oppression of sin. And because of Jesus, we have recovered the relationship with God that was first available to us before sin entered the world. And then Jesus sits down to begin his lesson. The rabbis in that time sat down to teach. All eyes are on him as he begins his message with, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. If you've ever taken a course on public speaking, you've probably spent some time on the art of creating a hook to capture your audience's attention. It can be something to draw your audience in, like, Today you'll learn something that will add 10 years to your life. Or a shocking statistic, like, do you know that more people have access to a mobile phone than a toilet? <laughs> you ask a question, you use a prop, you tell a joke, you tell a story, you relate something personal. All of these things are to grab the people's attention so that they will be focused as you present the relative information. Here Luke records Jesus' hook, and it's a shocking revelation. It's a bit mysterious. It's undeniably effective, because as he continues on, people are amazed at what he is saying. Think about this claim he makes. It's staggering. Jesus is saying that Isaiah's words written over 700 years ago apply to him. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. He claims to be the anointed one sent from God. He did not come of his own initiative. He was sent by the Father to bring God's salvation to the world. And though he does not spend much of his ministry among the and though he does spend much of his ministry among the poor, 
These terms, poor, captives, blind, and oppressed, primarily have spiritual meaning. And Luke doesn't record the entire text of Jesus' sermon. He records the hook, and then in verse 22, he changes his viewpoint. And he points the camera from Jesus to the audience. And he continues, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to him, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. The congregation is amazed at his gracious words. One of the reasons they're amazed is because Jesus has been raised as the son of a carpenter. They may have furniture in their homes that Jesus helped build. So when they're asking, isn't this Joseph's son? What they really want to know is how does this carpenter speak with such knowledge, grace, and authority? They're probably also curious how a son of Joseph can claim to be the sent one from God. There is a saying that too much familiarity breeds contempt. And Jesus' long residence in Nazareth as a craftsman has made him too common for the Nazarenes to appreciate fully, as those who are less familiar with his upbringing may be able to do. But still, things are going well. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But then Jesus' tone changes. Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Heal yourself. Prove yourself to us. Take care of your own. Jesus, you're one of us. We know you perform miracles in Capernaum. How about spreading some of that miraculous power around here in Nazareth? If you're the Messiah, show us your power. But here in Nazareth, Jesus is Joseph's son. He's not the Messiah. He's not the son of God. He's the son of Joseph the carpenter. And the people he grew up with that should have known him best do not really know him at all. And then he continues on and explains why in verse 24. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Possibly here Jesus is thinking about the time he spent in Samaria, where people accepted his message so quickly and easily. Jesus points out to these Nazarenes that all the prophets in Israel's history were rejected by the Israelites. In 1 Kings 19.10, Elijah laments to God, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me too. And in Jeremiah 35.15, Again and again, I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each of you must return from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow our gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I have given you and your ancestors, but you have not paid attention or listened to me. And in Acts 7, 7.52, Stephen tells the Sanhedrin, 
Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And you have now betrayed and murdered him. Elijah is chased into exile. Jeremiah is ridiculed and mocked. Stephen is stoned. And even John the Baptist during this time had been thrown into prison by Herod. And Jesus does not stop with the rejection of the prophets by Israel, he broadens his scope. And he goes on to illustrate that the prophets were often more kindly treated by Gentiles. And that Gentiles received blessings at their hands. He cites the case of Elijah's stay with the Gentile widow at Seraphath. We read in 1 Kings 17 that God sent Elijah to her, and Elijah helped her survive those years of drought. And he reminds them of the healing of Naaman, a Syrian military leader that had successfully attacked Israel. Read in 2 Kings 5 that Naaman had heard about Elisha from a captured Israelite slave girl. These were foreigners, and in Naaman's case, an enemy of Israel. But God blessed them, and not an Israelite. And we read in both cases that God blessed them because of their belief. Why did the Israelites have such a hard time accepting prophets when these foreigners believed? Pastor Kent Hughes tells a story of a large, prestigious British church. The church had three mission churches under its care, and on Communion Sunday they gathered together to take communion. These mission churches were located in the slums of a major city, and there were some outstanding cases of conversions, thieves, burglars, and others. But this Sunday, this communion Sunday, all knelt as brothers and sisters beside the communion rail. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England, the very judge who had sent him to jail, where he had served seven years. After his release, this burglar had been converted and become an active member in Christian ministry. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, did you notice he was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The two walked along in silence for a few moments, and the judge said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement, a marvelous miracle of grace indeed. And the judge inquired, to whom do you refer? The former convict, the pastor answered. The judge said, I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The minister, surprised, replied, you were thinking of yourself. I don't understand. You see, the judge went on, it's not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. When he understood that Jesus could be his savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew that he needed help. But look at me. I was taught from the earliest infancy to live as a gentleman. That my word was my bond. That I was to say my prayers, go to church, and take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford, obtained my degree, and was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be. Though, in fact, I too was a sinner. Pastor, it was not God's grace that drew me. Sorry, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I am the greater miracle. 
When you really think about it, it's not all that amazing that God's message of redemption is most easily accepted by those who feel the greatest need for it. Step one in communicating the gospel is convicting the person of a need for a savior, a need for God. That's not always an easy message to communicate or hear, especially when you don't feel the need. And it's certainly not one that the Israelites could easily accept. And then to suggest that a Gentile might possibly be more worthy of God's blessing was not one that these Nazarenes in the synagogue wanted to hear or were ready to accept. We read on in verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Can you picture this scene, these conservative Jewish people on a Sabbath day? Congregation at one moment is amazed at Jesus' words, and by the end of his message is so enraged that they get up and they chase him out to a cliff, intent on throwing him off it. And then Jesus just walks right through the crowd and goes on his way. And we aren't told how this was accomplished. It certainly seems miraculous. And sadly, if it was, it was the only miracle that the Nazarenes would see that day. So what can we possibly learn from this that can apply to our lives? First, God's prophets are never popular. And they're never popular because their message is true, and truth is not always easily accepted. Martin Luther said, The word of God is a sword, is a war, is a poison, is a scandal, is a stumbling block, is a ruin to those who resist it. In Acts 7.52, Stephen tells the Sanhedrin, Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They're not popular because they tell the truth. In 1 Kings 22, or the parallel account in 2 Chronicles 18, we read a story of a prophet named Micaiah. Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, came to ask Ahab, king of Israel, for military assistance. He needed to reconquer some land. Before committing, Ahab calls together 400 prophets, and he asks them, should I go, should I help? And all 400 say, go, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Jehoshaphat, looking around, notices that there is no prophet of the Lord. And he asks, is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Ahab's reply is very telling. He says, there is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. See, from the perspective of the wicked king Ahab, Micaiah never told him what he wanted to hear. From the perspective of God, Ahab never wanted to hear anything that God wanted to say to him. Ahab wanted God to affirm his sinful actions. Prophets are not popular with disobedient people, because disobedient people do not seek to do God's will. Like it was with the prophet, so it is with the Christian. Our words of counsel and exhortation may be welcomed by a fellow believer who seeks to do the will of God, 
But our words of warning and admonition are going to be rejected by anyone who is intent upon following their own sinful nature. Prophets are not popular because they tell the men what they need to hear rather than what they want to hear. Second, it's important to note that we Christians have a prophetic task. A prophet is an inspired teacher or proclaimer of the will of God. In 2 Peter 2.9, we're told, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In Matthew 5.11, Jesus tells Christians, like other prophets, can expect to be persecuted. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So prophets of God are never popular. And we as Christians have a prophetic task. But Jesus tells us to rejoice even in the face of that persecution. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is in heaven. Last thing I think we need to consider here is that our desire to be popular sometimes hinders our ministry. I know my failures to witness my faith are often caused by my fear of rejection. If we are more intent upon winning man's approval than God's, we either keep silent about the gospel, the gospel which will very often offend people, or we modify the gospel and make it more appealing and completely ineffective. God has given us all a task to do. Regardless of our circumstances, we are to present God's truth to a world that may not want to hear it, that often does not want to hear it, or will not hear it. But it's our task, regardless of our circumstances. God put it this way to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, 7 and 8. Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you. The life of Jesus is a constant testimony to his desire to please the Father. Please the Father more than anyone else. His actions and his words are always governed by the will of the Father. Once we have settled the question as to whom we would serve, whom we want to please, we have to come to grips with the task of the prophet, speaking the truth of God to a world that may not want to hear it. But we can rejoice and be glad because our reward is great in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this example of Jesus and what we can learn through it. Give us the strength, give us the spirit to speak truth even when it's not popular, even when it can lead to persecution or rejection. We can only do it through your spirit. We are weak, but you, you are strong and demonstrate your strength through us. Lord, help us to do this, I pray, throughout the week, throughout our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.